How do I sound in terms of my level? Oh, you sound great. Okay. Let's see is if I can the, get this. Is that the travel bit. yeti? The blue yeti? That's the bloody the blue yeti. So we'll nice. see. We'll see how it does this time. <laughs> the bloody yeti is a special drink they serve at the Calgary Chili's. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Ryan and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I am Gabe Ryan, critic in New Brunswick, and I am joined by Dr. That's right, Dr. Ken Holyoke, live from the uh, Chili's at the Calgary Airport. Uh, yes. How are you, Ken? Uh, doing well. I, I'm kind of, you know, still a little bit. I think in a little bit of a shock, you know, it's a, you can, uh, you can say you, you, you're hung over. That's what it is. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not too, too bad that way. I'm, I am quite tired. We were, uh, my, my cousin and my brother-in-law and I were out fairly late, but it was, it was a, it was a relatively low key evening. Um, yeah. Ken uh, has the look in his eyes of a man who spent an evening drinking uh, Balvenie scotch. That's old enough to be Indiana Jones's girlfriend. <laughs> yeah so actually i didn't i didn't actually have any scotch last night i had uh oh my goodness i had uh had some nice english ales and a and a couple margaritas so all right well there yeah. you go um so uh so listener we'll, we'll return to that theme here um momentarily but uh um can uh we we've been away for a little while from this, we have. this podcast uh, so yep. the listener might have noticed that we broke with our fortnightly schedule because we were in the field uh and in addition to being in the field you were um writing that little term paper yes, uh, that yeah. you had to at the flyback to Toronto to discuss last night. And um and so uh this is our, our first episode back and the theme of this episode is basically going to be uh your dissertation. But before um we get to that, um we have some administrative stuff to go through. And so the um first one is that we are sponsored. Uh, as always, by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick, who I believe still do not have a website, but may be accessed via the Internet Wayback Machine. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, you can pull some of the pages from uh, from the Wayback Machine. That's uh, that's excellent. Yeah. And and um, and our other um, thing that the listener may, might have noticed here is that we, despite this one month absence, dear listener, we still do not have a uh, a prize uh, we, a new name for this uh, for this podcast. We're still called the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And so, um, Ken, if if a listener had a new name for this podcast that they thought was more suitable, what email address would they send that to? Uh, they would send it to New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail dot com. That's all one word: New Brunswick Archaeology, spelled A R C H A E O L O G Y, at gmail dot com. And listener, if um, if that were to be this fortnight, the one that we uh, selected, the new name that we selected for this podcast, you would be in line for an extremely, an extremely um, uh, interesting and extremely really, absolutely important prize. <laughs> and so, so the listener, uh, the listener uh, is going to have to remember that one of the themes Ken and I have been working on in this podcast is that it's important to take care of yourself. It's important to um, as my former graduate student used to say, look out for number one. And so so that self-care theme is one that we're going to pick up um, in this episode. So, Ken, could you show the listener, uh, tell the listener, paint a picture with your words of what I'm holding here? 
our, our friend and co-host co Gabe has, has, from the edge of the screen, pulled into the picture a pocket-sized gong, it looks like. That's right. That's right. <laughs> complete this is, this is complete with mallet. Small mallet. And so oh, we're, uh, not, we're not we're not hearing the gong noise. This is the same issue we had with the xylophone, I think. Okay. Well, the listener will just have to know that I'm holding a gong, a small gong, and yep. that's uh, going to be important. We're going to return to that uh, as I go through this prize read because, you know, Ken, you, you really don't want it to be Chekhov's gong. If a gong appears at the beginning of a prize read, it needs to go off at some point <laughs> during the prize read. We can simulate so Ken, a gong noise for that if if need be. That uh, we could, we could, maybe yeah. we'll add it in later. Um, yeah. And so, Ken, uh, I wanted to take this opportunity because I thought, you know, um, you may remember uh, me when I was a graduate student, and you're no longer a graduate student. I'm no longer a graduate student. Um, but uh, you know, over the last decade or so, you've probably noticed that that my personal philosophy has become a little bit more Eastern. You know, the uh, you're out looking for a babysitter. I'm out looking for a baby sitar. Um, and the reason I bring this up because <laughs> you might recall that as a PhD student, I was sometimes wound a little bit tight, you know, sometimes a little bit of anxiety, occasional battle with depression, History. moments of self-doubt um, and all of that worrying amidst all that worrying. Uh, you may also recall that I was um, doing battle with pre-hypertension. Do you remember this? <laughs> that is that is correct. Yeah. And. and it's it's a funny you lost, thing. You lost you lost enough hairline for both of us, I think. Actually, during that time period, that was I sh I sure did, yeah. And uh, and so no, it's a funny thing about um about these Western approaches. You know, Western biomedicine is that is that Western biomedicine is really primarily interested in treating real diseases. You know, and prehypertension is not what would really be understood as a real disease. And so, when I finished my PhD and I, I took a faculty post, I noticed that I'd really shaved some digits off the old systolic uh, aspect of my blood pressure. That's the the numerator, so to speak, of the blood pressure. And um, I think that was in part related to some serious lifestyle changes that I'd made. And the first was getting paid a salary that was more substantial than my graduate stipend. But I really knew it was going to take more than that to um, to get the blood pressure where I wanted it. Um, no, and also curious, to take, uh, take a philosophical approach that I thought was now. more consistent with the kind of I'm life that I wanted now. to be living. What's the, mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Where, what's that? More Zen. Well, yeah, that's where my guru came in. So, um, so I went out and and I and I met this guru, um, and I I selected this one really because of his singular ability to meld <laughs> Eastern and Western approaches in a way that's both firm and compassionate. Um, and the winner this week should know that this is a really special offer for our listeners because it's ordinarily only available to people with American health insurance. Um, but this guy's making really a special exception. Um, and this guy's in, in real demand, right? And that's part of why I don't want to share his name right now. Um, but look, he, he studied with Thomas Merton and he used to shoot pool with Ram Dass. Um, and he's got all sorts of pot shot clientele. Like he works for instance with the Oakland A's bullpen pitchers. Um, their ERA was even higher than my psychologic blood pressure. Um, I can tell you that much. So anyway, um, you probably want to know what the prize this week is at this juncture. I'm I am I am just waiting with bated breath here. That's uh yeah, yeah, good, good. And and so look, listener, um, I'm a doctor, but I'm not the kind who helps people. Um, but it looks to me, um, again, you know, from a sort of Eastern perspective here, that Ken has got a bit of heat on his liver today. Um, and that's uh, simple enough to understand. That's just due to a yin deficiency, um, which leads to the accumulation of heat. And of course, that's the main cause for a liver yin deficiency is the kidney, 
which is the root source of the yin and the yang. And so to address this, I'm going to share just some of the kinds of tips that you can get from this guru. Who you may get to win. Um, if you send in the new prize, read, you may get to win six sessions with this. But he told me I can I can release this one um, this one trick for the listeners, but also to help uh, to help Dr. Holyoke. So, so just um, just to pause here for a second. This is this like a clickbait thing? Like, oh no, no, this is just, real. It's it's the one trick. This is the one trick that's gonna. <laughs> He's got lots of tricks. This is just the only one I can share with okay, you on all right, air. All right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And so what we're gonna do, Ken, is we're gonna do a breathing exercise. Okay. Okay. And um and so this is um what we call the four seven eight breathing exercise. The units in the United States are slightly different. Um, don't worry about that now. Ken's in Canada. I'm in Canada. Um, and that's going to be fine. And so, okay, Ken, I'm going to explain to you what you're going to do, and then we're going to do it on air, okay? Okay, okay. Okay, so um, what you're going to first need to do is is um, just behind your upper front teeth, you're going to want to sort of tuck your tongue, you know, that that kind of fleshy ridge right there? Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. And then um, now take a few practice breaths, exhaling through your mouth and just around your tongue. You might need to purse your lips slightly if this seems awkward. So kind of going to go, Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And now what I'm going to have to have you do is exhale completely through your mouth, making a whooshing sound. Did you catch okay, that? That did not get did not get picked up by the microphone, but the listener is going to have to know Ken just made a, a whooshing sound. Okay. <laughs> now you're going to close your mouth and you're going to inhale oh. quietly through your nose to a mental count of four. So breathe in for four. Okay. And now you're going to want to hold your breath for a count of seven. And now you're going to exhale, making a whooshing sound again. And count to okay. And now what you're going to need to do, you've done the exercise here, but I'm going to need to hit this gong. And as soon as I hit the gong, I'm going to want you to just have a moment of silence where we can only hear the airport chilies. While you collect and think about something that you're grateful for. Are you ready and, for this? And and listener, if you can if you can hear it, hey Mickey, you're so fine is on the on the is playing right now. So if it seems like there's some hint of that in the background, you're catching the background noise. Okay. So you've got your gratitude all lined up. Okay. And so um how do you feel, Ken? Uh, just I just want to make sure I switch back to the right. Uh, I was trying to pick up some ambiance. Oh, I think we got some ambiance. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. Uh, good. I mean, you know, like uh, I, I, it's uh, it is a little bit surreal. Um, you know. Oh no no. Uh, I mean, I mean, how do you feel after the breathing exercise? Oh, uh, I rejuvenated. Just get uh, your PhD shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Just totally, totally different. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so. Listen, I had a similar I had a similar breathing exercise thing at a at the tent where you could find your uh, spirit animal at uh, Common Ground, but it was four four and four then. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was the wrong one. Um, okay. So so listener, look, the the evidence is before me. I can see that that Ken's liver is cool, and some of that is because he's currently hucking down another Caesar. Um, but <laughs> uh, but if this is the kind of the kind of of work that you think might be might be helpful for you. Consider shipping in um, a new name for this podcast, and we will get you set up with our um, official guru of the Nerunzo Archaeology Podcast, who um, who will help you with your various uh, 
deficiencies and do so in a way that is firm and compassionate. So Ken, if we have the new uh, the new name for this podcast, if some listener out there has it, where should they email it to? Uh, new Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. All right. And so, um, Ken, is there anything in that uh, mailbox? Yes, new? there there is. And apologies to the listener if we actually already read this, but uh, uh, this is from uh, our, our loyal listener, Wally, um, who provided us with the lovely bingo cards um, that, uh, that you can find on our Instagram page um, or by contacting us via email at newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. And Wally says, hi, Gabe and Ken. Love the field school episode. In an amusing coincidence, I noticed mid-episode that I happened to be wearing my T-shirt from the 2019 field school where I learned oh, how to be an archaeologist from Gabe and Arthur. Uh, I vi- uh, that's Arthur Anderson, our colleague at the University of New England. Uh, I, vivid- I vividly nice recall getting stuck in my first ever 90 centimeter deep unit at that field school, and it would not have been the last. I'd be- So I'd be jealous of this year's students, even if they hadn't subsequently experienced the horrors of Virginie Clay. Thank you. Thanks to the for the art shout out, by the way. I didn't know there were so many ways to shoehorn a certain sea monster into a design until the NEAS came along. But I do like the challenge. So this is referencing the uh, um, patches for the New England or the uh, Northeast Archaeological Survey that uh, that Wally made up. I'm also sorry to hear nobody has entered the EcoForce swag contest so far. Well, Wally, that has changed and we've got some excitement coming up here soon. Uh, the thread that stuck out to me the most throughout the episode was this theme of accessibility. I'm so glad that Future NB is continuing to fund UNB's field schools, and that is an excellent, actually, program. Um, I would have paid for my second field school if COVID hadn't canceled the 2020 season, and I'm still grateful for the organization despite the missed opportunity. Working in CRM, I definitely noticed the advantages that field schools offer, especially in terms of experiential learning and how field-ready the average archaeology student actually is when they get to their first shovel bomb job. Anything that can lower some of these financial barriers barriers is vital to the health of the discipline. Cheers, Wally. P.S. Thanks very much, Wally. That's lovely. P.S. In reference to your episode, Indiana Jones and the Oh No, I Forgot the Stadia Rod, sounds like a fantastic archaeology movie. Does it include a scene where the long-suffering T.A. has to reteach Dr. Jones Pythagorean theorem partway through laying in the grid? I, I think I don't it probably know, would. Like, I think yeah, yeah, probably I would, yeah. yeah. It might, might uh, well. <laughs> and as uh, as uh, uh, our colleague Trevor Dow and I learned one time, uh, you can know Pythagorean theorem, but if you're using compasses that are set on different declinations, you will, you will never find that 90 degree angle. Sure won't. You sure won't. Um, the uh, real highlight of my uh, recent field season, Ken, was the um, you know those those MLID GPS units that are on on the sticks. Yeah, the uh, I managed to drop one off a cliff and into the ocean, but uh, but turns out they float. That's good. Yeah, it was a nice yeah. surprise. It was uh, yeah. even more exciting than the teachings of Pythagoras is, is dropping <laughs> one of those units and and having to scramble down to find it. No, so and, and, um, and being pleased that two thousand dollars didn't just uh, float away into the intertidal zone. Hard to explain to Shirk, I think. Yeah. Um. So uh. So listener. Um. The format roughly for this is going to be that um, uh, last uh, night before last, uh, Ken Holyoke, uh, Dr. Ken Holyoke, and I um, recorded the pregame for his thesis defense, where we also talked about what his thesis was about. Yeah. What we're doing now after the defense is we're going to do the postgame and also uh, ask him how it went. And then we're going to have some of uh, our hit pieces. 
And then we're going, or probably yeah, sometime around then, we're going to splice in Trevor Dow drawing for the first batch of EcoForce swag. Does that sound right to you, Ken? That sounds right to me. And so what the listener will experience here is a switch over to the previously recorded episode, and then we'll pick back up with today's episode. This doesn't mean anything to you, listener, because we've sorted everything out chronologically, but uh, exposition is the uh, is how we guide everybody along. So exactly. So um, so I'll hit the gong, Ken, and we'll know that it's time to uh, to switch time. OK, perfect. Perfect. All right. Um, so uh, so listener, um, we uh, we are at Ken's uh, auxiliary studio here and by by we, I mean, really, Ken is at Ken's auxiliary studio here. So where are you, Ken? Will you tell the listener? Well, I am I am once again in the Calgary Airport Chili's. And, and as I have figured out, there are actually several of these ones. So I'm in the Seagate. Um, uh, okay. C, the C-Wing. I don't know how they what they call them here. C-Terminal or something like that. At is, the Calgary it's Airport. C-Suite, isn't it? Isn't that what we call executives now? That, that <laughs> they're C-Suite executives? So this is this is I think the largest of the chilies. So it might be the executive chilies. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah. so Ken is in the C suite chilies at the at the Calgary. And, and Ken, where are you going? I am headed to uh, the Big Smoke to YYZ uh-huh. or otherwise known as Trana. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's that's YYZ for our American listeners and Toronto yeah. for our American listeners. Exactly. Um, and what and, are you doing in Toronto? And uh, as the as the listener, the frequent listener might know. Um, a theme of the first season of the show was uh, my lamentations about not actually having finished my dissertation, uh, despite getting what's called a uh, an ABD appointment, so an all but <laughs> dissertation appointment, a job, um, if you will, a job. Yes. Um, and and it's a it's quite a stretch to say that you've done everything but the dissertation because. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I am going to defend my thesis tomorrow uh, in Toronto. That is um, very exciting. And uh, um, so, so Ken, for the for the listener here, I thought it might be interesting. Actually, um, what is it you you learn in a in a PhD? I, I thought this is kind of, I was thinking about this when I was going to ask you. Um, and we're actually doing this before the dissertation, so before your defense. So, but one of the things I thought would be interesting to ask you is what you learned that was different than what you learned doing your masters. So, so the masters is kind of the the I don't know would it be fair to call it the kind of credential degree right you can do most kinds of archaeological employment outside of being a, a regular professor yep. with a master's but many people in CRM have PhDs um so what what's different between the master's and the PhD so so yeah so like you said the master's is a little bit like a credential degree it's almost like a professional degree in in archaeology now and in fact like you know the university where I work we actually have a CRM master's program which is you know in some ways, basically setting up the MA as a professional degree, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you run that program, right? Yes, yeah. So right. I'm the coordinator for that program. Um, What's the program and, called? You might as well just give it a shout out since uh, the CRM <laughs> the, the CRM Masters program at the University okay. of Lethbridge. So great. Um, and accepting go applications. Pronghorns. Yeah, go pronghorns. There you go. Um, and uh, so, so your Masters is about basically demonstrating that you can take um, a research product to. Uh, to its conclusion, right? So you can take a, you can form, formulate a thesis statement. You can uh, do your project, and you can, and you can finish the work, basically, right? The PhD, I think, is different in the sense that um, it's a larger scale. Um, it's a, usually a little bit more independent than your master's was. So in this case, um, uh, instead of working on a project that had already been excavated, 
for like I did for my master's, um, I developed a project. I uh, developed fieldwork program. I developed some research methods. And and instead of kind of going down one line of questioning, usually you have a couple lines of questioning. Uh, your data set is probably a little bit larger uh, in scale and in scope. Um, and what maybe is a local sort of uh, interpretation in your master's, uh, in your PhD, I think you strive to do a little bit more of a global interpretation and a global context in terms of how your research contributes more broadly to, in our case, anthropological archaeology. Um, and, you know, and instead of th thinking regionally, maybe you think a little bit more globally about your research. Great. And so... Um... Toronto is in many ways like the most American of the Canadian PhD programs, I think. So I'm guessing that our experiences were about the same. But um, was your program, I'm trying to remember, I know you told me this, but your program was, is it about two years of coursework and then research for the PhD? Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. so the idea is that you'll have a, a three semesters, three full semesters of coursework. So you take six courses, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I did four, five courses and then I did one what's called a directed reading course. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you develop with your supervisor um, a reading course where, uh, say you have a research focus that doesn't fit into one of the courses that are generally taught at a graduate level, or that, for example, isn't being offered in the time that you need to take it. So mm -hmm. um, in my case, I was really interested in landscape and phenomenology and uh, placemaking. Notice, notice, listener, he said was interested. Uh, writing this <laughs> dissertation has, has broken him of that interest, I suspect. <laughs> not, 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 not entirely, but uh, I, I think I was maybe a little bit naive about how I might be able to apply all these concepts. But yeah, and actually, um, this is the, something else the listener won't know is that in a, in a graduate phenomenology course, the the first three weeks are just devoted to uh, every time you hear a phenomena, not going do 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 do. <laughs> phenomena do, um, do, do, do. <laughs> and uh so so yeah so my directed reading course was on landscape archaeology and phenomenology and placemaking um which is sort of the core theoretical um avenue which i went down and, and maybe we'll talk about this more post-defense mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah so you do a year and a half of coursework you develop a thesis proposal so basically out of all of the coursework that i've done the project that i had envisioned coming in and the directed reading course should be shaping you towards a sort of a coherent um, uh, a proposal. So this is, you know, this is a fairly comprehensive document. It's meant to be about, you know, uh, uh, like 30 to 40 page paper in some ways where you outline um, what the background uh, to the area that you're working in. So the, the culture historical or, or regional background, why you think the research is important. Um, what your argument is going to be. So these might be framed through one or two research questions. Uh, you're going to outline your methods. So how are you going to collect data to support those research questions? Um, and you're going to present what you think your interpretations are going to be. So you're going to put a hypothesis forward about how you think this project is going to go forward. And then at U of T as well, you're required to include um, a timeline of how you think this stuff is going to plan out. So essentially you're kind of mapping out what your next couple of years are going to look like. Um, and yeah, and then you do, so you submit that to a, a committee um, and uh, a group of usually five or six professors read your work. They provide you guidance and comments on it. So your supervisor um, gives you kind of edits as you're building towards this completed document and then it circulates. So supervisor kind of guides you through this. Um, and then you do an oral defense of that thesis proposal. And so you stand up in front of a room and you do a short presentation about what your findings were and maybe answer some of the questions that you had gotten from other people already. 
and then they ask you a series of questions about that work. And so the thesis proposal at U of T is structured around preparing students to have familiarity with an oral defense, um, which you will eventually have to do to defend your thesis um, when you have finished writing it. Um, and once you have successfully defended that proposal, um, you have completed the coursework. Uh, at U of T, there's actually a language requirement as well. So I had to do uh, demonstrate that I can work in French, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, in some cases, actually, now they accept coding as a language. So um, a number yes. of the, yeah, yeah. another of the paleoanthropologists use coding languages like R um, in their uh, data sets. And so if you know how to code in a particular language, that's considered a language requirement now. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, and then, um, there's and no comprehensive exam at Toronto anymore. Is that right? That's correct. And I don't think there cool. has been for some time. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So once you finish your thesis proposal, you are considered ABD. So you finish your coursework, you finish your language requirement, you've um, uh, uh, presented your uh, your research and it's it's been defended. To, the, the proposal has been defended and you set off to do your work. And and you should maybe go over what comps are, because these are sort of the most sadistic thing that I think exists <laughs> in, in the university world. Um, so I should say that I actually had a very good experience with my comprehensive exams, uh, which were at the University of Connecticut, where I, I, I learned an awful lot. Um, I've since been on a number of comprehensive exam committees, and I've gotten the sense that that rewarding experience is not always the case. But um, <laughs> but. So one of the things that Ken alluded to, though, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but but at Toronto, at least at the University of Connecticut, where I did mine, uh, my PhD, uh, one of the uh, things that you get to do is you get to add a little bit more, not just regional breadth, which you, you mentioned, sure. yeah. um, but also you do some more work on um, typically like cultural anthropology and things like that. Yeah. Um, so you get to take some graduate level coursework or even outside of your uh, your immediate um, yeah field right you might take history or something like that yeah um, yeah yeah and, and you get exposed to a lot more voices i think is the other thing too right like absolutely um and perspectives like that coursework is really about kind of shaping you into uh a, a more global researcher like that you are more familiar with a broader set of reading um that you're not kind of winnowed down into a sort of more narrow uh place where you've been before um, and it's meant to kind of open your eyes to new ways of thinking. Like, I, you know, I will admit, I really didn't know a whole lot about, you know, uh, I was interested in the idea of landscape archaeology, but I didn't really know what the sort of background of it was and phenomenology and sort of British archaeology, how it kind of developed this concept. And um, I won't bore the listener with that now. That's when, <laughs> I, when I talk about my defense afterwards, what, what phenomenological theory is. But essentially, you know, like a lot of what I read during my graduate coursework um, opened my eyes to a body of literature that the way I had been thinking about archaeology that I kind of thought was a little bit out there. I was like, oh, well, there's actually people who do research like this. It's just I hadn't read that stuff before. Yeah. And the, the purpose, I think, of the comprehensive exam, at, at least at the University of Connecticut, uh, was to add sort of breadth rather than depth, right? So if the dissertation was a deep dive on a topic, the comprehensive exams where you you got assigned a list of um i think it at, at UConn, i'm trying to remember i'm using part of my brain that i haven't had to use for a while i think it was five exams and so i think you got five reading lists in each reading list had like 25 papers and five books on it and you study for them for like a semester and yeah. then it would be on you know things that were relevant to you but also were sort of you you would get these and then you'd get five questions you'd have a i think three hours per question i took mine all in one week um 
and you would answer because Gabe is a masochist. <laughs> the uh, yeah, what's, so but the, the thing is, it actually is like the last time in my life where it was really it felt like reading was my only job, right? You know, I spent just sat down yeah. with these five lists, read it, and then if you'd done the reading, you could at least have a stab at the questions, um, and and retain some sense of dignity, um, exactly. and uh, yeah. and so it was useful. It's the same idea, I think. It's kind of a holdover, um of the various language requirements that PhD programs have um, that you have to be able to read at least nominally in a scholarly language. Uh, the listener will know that I actually can't really read uh, confidently in another scholarly language, but still, still somehow met the requirements. Um, <laughs> so don't let that intimidate you. What, and, what was your, what was your language? Uh, German, but I guess I'd taken enough of, um, as a, uh, as a uh, undergraduate to nominally be able to uh, read archeology span auf Deutsch. Um, so, so did you, so what was, the, so my, for my exam, I had to take a French article. And uh, so like uh, Michael Shazen sent me an article on sort of lithic technology written in French. Um, and I had to translate, uh, it wasn't the whole article, but there was a substantial section. He ba basically said from this to this, um, uh, and you had like two hours to do the translation. And it had to be like, a real translation it couldn't be sort of like literal word for word it had to be that you know you translate it into an article written in english so you know there's some of that nuance that that is written you know the there's not a direct translation for this word for example so you actually have to restructure the sentence written in the other yeah language. yeah um is uh, what was what was yours my recollection was that for the north americanists if you'd taken enough of a foreign language as an undergraduate you didn't have to take um that exam oh, okay um, interesting was was my recollection and i can't I, I think i also had some version of like some graduate minor i i don't remember the exact way all the different things assembled but um but i didn't actually have to do that but i know some people did um hashtag failing yukon so yeah, exactly exactly yeah, they're, just, they're just giving out <laughs> degrees there that's uh... they really are it's true the uh, you know we're that other university in connecticut there's there's <laughs> that that small one in new haven um the uh, so um Ken you um I think when you started your PhD you were planning like so I, I know you've always been interested in an academic career or at least you had become interested in an academic career but you there was a substantial possibility you were going to go back and do cultural resource management at the end of it is that right yeah yeah I mean I kind of I left the door open to um the PhD being kind of my last opportunity like what I I like what you said that this is sort of the reading course was sort of your last opportunity to just kind of read and enjoy and learn. And, and I think that anybody who's taking on a PhD project, I think one of the things that can be hard to appreciate while you're doing it is that you will never get another opportunity to read and kind of in this unfettered, beautiful world of being a graduate student again um, and sort of relish it more than being stressed about it. I think kind of take it and, and run with it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I, I went in you know, with my eyes open to uh, a challenging job market in the academic world. Um, you know, I, I I think anybody has this starting out uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, not really sure if I had the chops to do academia. Um, but also, um, I enjoy CRM. Uh, I, I did not enjoy being on the road as much as I was uh, with a young kid. And so I viewed the PhD as a way to potentially just go back into either private consulting in the into the private consulting world or um uh the public sector and contribute to crm in that way as sort of a uh you know in a more administrative or senior position 
um, where, you know, I wouldn't be on the road all the time, but I'd still be engaging with archaeology and, and, you know, do the occasional field work stuff, like kind of have a little bit more opportunity to pick and choose what I wanted to do. Yeah. So it's just kind of a thought experiment. Um, and the reason I was thinking about this was I was talking to um, a friend and colleague of mine who uh, is a PhD, uh, runs, or I guess has a PhD. That's sort of weird that we say that is a PhD. That's not, that's kind of odd, but uh, I guess has a PhD. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and did a bunch of interesting work on isotopes and uh, human evolution and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, but then ultimately now runs um, a series of uh, several consulting companies down here in New England, uh, TerraSearch and Heritage. And uh, I think this? they just bought it. Uh, Dave Leslie. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And, um, and, but one of the things that I've, I think is interesting about, uh, about, I guess, since we're talking about Dave is that my sense is, and it'd be interesting to ask him about this is that one of the things that the PhD equipped him to do, I mean, he's he's a sharp guy, obviously, but his his research was not in the Northeast, really, originally, um, is it seems like the PhD gave him these tools that he was pretty quickly able to pick up and apply to a new problem set. Um, and I, I'd be curious to get your sort of thoughts on that, or just more broadly, too, if you think if, if um, you knew someone, say, who was interested in CRM, um, but also, you know, came and said, you know, Professor Hellyoke, I'm interested in doing a PhD, what you might tell them or what considerations you might tell them to think about. So that they want to do a PhD, but get back into CRM, is that kind of what? Yeah, or that they wouldn't rule it out, right? That they're they're not dead set on it. Well, I, I guess the I, I know my advice to someone dead set on an academic career is uh, start learning to be not dead set on an academic career, right? That's yeah. kind of, I guess, the first advice is accept that there's a variety of ways of fulfilling life in archaeology and being dead set on, on the one that's very, very difficult to get a job in is probably not the ticket for happiness. But but I guess what sort of skills should, should they pick up? Um, what is the applicability of the PhD to cultural resource management work? Um, I, I'm just I think, kind of curious about your thoughts. I think you, like you pointed out, I think one of the things that you are doing is is you're thinking about a lot more broadly about problems. You're able, you know, like you know this about me. I have a, I struggle with being able to see the forest for the trees sometimes, <laughs> and, yes. and and uh, I spend a lot of time. Uh, you know, writing shrubbery when I should be kind of thinking <laughs> about, um, you know, land, uh, you know, uh, land use planning, I guess would be the, the scale. But, um, <laughs> but the PhD kind of opens your eyes to um, different ways of approaching archaeological questions. It, oh, like you, you read so broadly that you are able to be more familiar with how archaeology is done in other parts of the world, how people apply different methods. Um, you learn skills like uh, how to read deeply and read quickly, how to be able to draw out something from literature. And so, you know, if you're reading through technical reports or you're trying to get yourself familiar with a, the local culture history in an area, one of the things that you will acquire is just sort of this skill to be able to um, digest a ton of information and be able to condense it into packages. Um, so, you know, be able to pull out the important information from a whole bunch of stuff and be able to communicate that. Um, you're going to be a better writer, uh, which I think is, is critical mm -hmm. in CRM. Um, you know, you will write differently in CRM than you will in an academic setting. But if you really apply yourself at learning how to write, uh, one of the things you'll find is that more you write, better you are at it and it actually becomes much easier to write in different voices. So one of the things I try to encourage my students to think about 
when they're, you know, kind of complaining about having to write so much is that the idea with writing is that if you do all sorts of different types of writing, so critical responses and short essays and long essays and, and uh, annotations, like annotated bibliographies and that sort of stuff, you're learning how to write in a whole bunch of different ways. And that's going to make you better when you get back into whatever field it is that you choose to pursue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the topics that, that you and I have tried to emphasize, I think, on this podcast is that... Um, Obviously, the the degree of publication is going to be different in cultural resource management than in academia. It's going to be different at, um, say, a research institution compared to a more teaching focused institution. All that is true, but that I think it is important for um, folks in CRM, for um, for folks in government. Um, you know, they there is still the the code of archaeological ethics isn't unique because someone is not in academia, and it still uh, obligates people, I think, to share the results of their work. And so, yep. you know, one of the things actually that I think is is great about um, about Dave's company, who we we're just talking about, and I think some of his, his um, you know, and I suspect some of this is from his his background in in uh, doing a PhD, is his companies have a real kind of culture of publication, right? That they're they're pumping a lot of stuff out, yep. um, and that's the and I think that's the kind of thing we're we're trying to encourage. Um, and and also I think collaborations and, and to some degree your program, I hope builds this this up as well where you've got um, in an academic setting a program focused on CRM and hopefully building collaborations for lots of publication because it's really important. Um, yeah, yeah, and and being able to know like what is publishable out of research that not you know not everything you're going to do is going to turn into a publication, but that um, but that it is that is there is something that you are doing and whatever you're producing there is some piece of that that is without question publishable or or you know Absolutely. the masters you wouldn't pass that masters program right like there's something to your research that is that is contributing to the discipline more broadly and i mean and like i think it goes without saying too and we didn't mention this is that during your phd chances are you're collecting data either through field work or collections research and without question, you're going to develop new skills and methods for analyzing archaeological data that are going to be critical and that are going to offer you opportunities to know how to apply that in the professional, like in the consulting, for example, if that's a free on top. Absolutely. And so on this subject, Ken, um, I believe that Stephen Loring, who is your external examiner. Yeah, external appraiser. Called external appraiser. My yeah. goodness. Um, and uh, and Stephen Loring is an Arctic archaeologist, Smithsonian, great guy, tons of interesting work, especially on Rama Church. Yep. Um, and but am I right that Stephen had you add um, a, is it a, a, a community or a public archaeology statement to your dissertation? Yeah, yeah. So he actually had a really interesting comment about um, how, you know, it's clear that I'm doing some kind of level of community engaged archaeology but one of the things that he said is you know becoming more common is that the readers of our work if we're really doing community engaged archaeology should include the communities who we're working with and so you know you write a thesis in a very academic tone and one of the ways that you can help communicate the results of a you know a, a couple hundred page thesis is by writing sort of an executive summary. And so I do this when I write technical reports for the community. So there's a page page or two that they can peel off the front of that and send out to community members mm -hmm. about what's the purpose of the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, what are the implications of it? What are the findings? Why is it important? Why should you be interested in it? Or, you know, that or why not kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, so I have included um, a three page summary for interested readers at the front that is aimed at communicating why I did the work that I did, 
um, what I found, how I did it, and and maybe what the implications are or the you know the contribution of my work more broadly. And it's aimed at an audience of uh, you know the general public, uh, indigenous communities. Um, or anybody who might want to learn a little bit more about archaeology. And so one of the things that I think I'll probably do once uh, it's, you know, the, the final version or the okayed version is I will share that, um, you know, on my academia page, for example, so that people can see how my work communicates more broadly and, you know, get uh, generate conversations, I think, that would go beyond um, just the thesis itself. Excellent. So trying to think about those uh, multiple audiences for any given piece of archaeological research. Yeah, yeah. And like you you pulled out a really great line from the SAA and their ethical uh, principles um, has a uh, describes many publics. Um, uh -huh, and, that, yeah. and, and I think that that's actually a really excellent way to think about the way that archaeology, who we work with and for, basically, are these many publics. Um, yes, so, so thinking about who might find some use in your in your um, in your research, um, okay, cool. So, and then we mentioned so so your external appraiser is Stephen Loring, um, yep. out of Smithsonian. Who else is on your committee? Uh, so my supervisor Gary Copeland, um, okay, West uh, West Coast guy, Northwest um, Coast guy, um, literally wrote the book on on uh, you know some of the Northwest Coast archaeology. Yep, House, like household archaeology. Matson, right? Copeland and Matson, yep. Matson and Copeland. Yep. Yeah. Um, household archaeology guy, too. So uh -huh. um, uh, the my core committee is made up of uh, Michael Shazen, who's a lithic technologist and lithics expert, mm -hmm. um, works mostly on paleolithic stuff in Israel, and South Africa. But is branching um, out into into North America. We've yeah. uh, we've we've brought Michael Chazen over to the dark side and is yeah, interested yeah. in the the Trenton gravels now. Exactly. Yeah. So so his uh, graduate student, um, Amy Fox. Uh, and and I like to think I had a little bit of a role in it, but we we've convinced them that Northeast archaeology is um, that Northeast lithic technology itself is also very interesting, which Michael I think wasn't convinced of for some time. Um, yeah, he he seemed like he he um, it was fun when I uh, was in Toronto for some reason I uh, sat and chatted with him for a while. I think with you he um, he had the real zeal of the converted. He was this uh, you know he's <laughs> super excited and and, uh, and and that'll be great. He's he's an interesting guy and he's done a lot of interesting uh, interesting work. So that'll be a great uh, so nice work converting people. You so you you brought Gary Copeland over to the East Coast. Uh, yeah. Michael Chazen to North America. You and you and Amy and um, who, okay, who else is on your committee? And then a regional guy. So uh, Craig Sapola, who is mm -hmm. the former curator for North American Archaeology at the ROM, um, the right. Royal Ontario Museum, and he is now uh, an associate professor at Tufts University, cool. which is in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's just outside of uh, Boston. Yeah. Um, and Craig, uh, Craig has had a long term research project working with the Mohegan um, in Connecticut. Um, yeah, he worked so at the other res when I was working at uh, at Foxwoods. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he has a community engaged project sort of and he does mostly sort of contact like early contact and and historic archaeology um but uh, uh is kind of a theoretical whiz so he's mm -hmm. big into the materiality and and ontological turn literature he's written a couple books about archaeological theory um and uh so yeah so he's kind of a regional scope uh and theoretical um uh, uh wizard in that way and and uh and then the rest of the defense committee so that's my core committee is gary and, oh, wow. and michael and craig um, cool. And for the defense, they add a couple extra people um, that mm -hmm. read extra readers. And so uh, Max Friesen, who's uh, 
uh, Arctic Great. archaeology mentor of a good friend of ours, Matthew Betts. Uh-huh. Um, and, so Max uh, is a zoo, ar- zoo archaeologist. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Was a was an acolyte of um, an acolyte of uh, the Howard Savage Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, then uh, Ted Banning. Just oh, cool. Okay, another household guy. No more. Just the just Bill. Yeah. Um, the the listener will know that that Ken just just decided because he's defending tomorrow not to have his fourth breakfast Caesar at the <laughs> at the Chili's there in uh, in uh, Calgary. This is, so this is the this is the uh, get to the airport, have a coffee, um, then have a Caesar so that you know get your uppers and downers balanced out so that you can be kind of like uncomfortable but sleepy on the plane. Yeah. That's, uh, it, and need to pee. That's also crucial. That's nothing yeah. like quite like really, really getting I've, that. I've got that about going. I've got about half an hour to pee about six times before I get on the plane, <laughs> so I don't need to get out of my seat again. Yeah. Um, uh, for the for the American listener, what is a Caesar? What is this repulsive thing you're consuming? So this is Gabe hates these things, but they are one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's clamato, which is clam and tomato juice mixed together. And I'm not uh-huh. sure who originally came up with this idea, but uh clamato juice um i i think it's called clamato juice would it be juice uh, i i i believe i believe i've seen them that you can get them pre-mixed yeah um and uh there's tabasco sauce in it worcester uh-huh. sauce um uh-huh. you've got uh, vodka uh-huh. um spicy salt rimmer around the edge mm-hmm. and usually you have a um, piece of celery or uh a spicy bean. This one actually had a spicy piece of asparagus in it. Um, oh, interesting. That's uh, yeah. the chili's uh, special, I guess. I think so. Yeah. So um, it's it's and, sort of a, a a bloody mary, which which I also don't care for. Um, for uh, Canadian tastes. Uh, yeah. It's it's yeah, because a bloody mary is just tomato juice, isn't it? I, I'm actually not sure. Okay. But in yeah, any case, I, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're delicious, and uh, and they're a great they're a great breakfast drink. Um, for anybody who's uh, <laughs> uh, who's looking for, so for for that uh, that that certain thing to line your stomach before the noon hour, um, yes. So so yeah. So getting back when to when yogurt the... just doesn't fit the bill. So T Max Friesen <laughs> was uh, was one of your examiners, and then yeah. Ted Banning who, and Ted Banning um, near Eastern houses, but also wrote that great um, the lab methods book. The yeah, was an archaeologist yeah. lab or something. Archaeologist laboratory um, uh, household guy. So he and Gary actually co-edited a book like people in big houses um yeah ted's research has been mostly based in the the neolithic and the levant so um you know the the woodland of uh of the fertile crescent basically yeah um and uh yeah yeah so that's the that's the examining committee um everyone gonna be there in uh, person or no so i'm fairly sure so everybody is going to be there in person except um loring i think craig actually may be there um Uh, Gary had said something the other day that made me think he may be there in person. I could be wrong. Me? Yeah. Cool. But um, and then we were going to be chaired by um, uh, a professor uh, Boucher from the Faculty of Information. I guess uh, uh, the chair of the sessions of uh, the dissertation defenses. Um, anthropology does the Faculty of Informations, and Faculty oh, of cool. Information does anthropology. Apparently, that's a long-standing thing that they've had. So. Okay. In fact, the information is that the library school, basically. Yeah. 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 Library school, and they're affiliated with OISE, which is the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um. So, uh, when does when does your we probably have to let you go fairly soon here, don't we? 
Yeah, yeah, I'll probably have to jet here in a couple minutes. Um, okay. Um, so let's just get your um your your sort of your last uh last thoughts going in uh in on this. So um how 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 are you feeling about it? Uh I'm I'm ready for the for 4 p.m. tomorrow. That's uh yes. um I I'm in the frame of mind where I'm happy with my presentation. Um I'm fairly prepared to answer uh the questions. Um I you know I feel good with the the committee comments and the external appraiser comments uh make me think that in the for the most part i think everybody's in agreement that the thesis is is defensible obviously um mm -hmm. but uh um yeah i i'm feeling pretty good about it um good, you know good a little bit of stress but uh yeah. you know that's i think that's a good thing um, oh yeah for sure i mean um uh, i think i think that's normal but but no i think you're right they they would probably not let it get to this stage if they were concerned about it and that committee is really the a team too which is exciting yeah yeah so um it's the old I, joke I, right that it's the last time you're guaranteed to be in a room where everyone's read what you've written <laughs> that's, that's very true and yeah. hopefully they've read it you know that's the you know that they didn't just send the uh send the comments but, um, <laughs> exactly so yeah no uh, i'm looking forward to it it's uh um it's a long time coming you know um i've how long I've, how long were you in were you you were you were you finished in quick time didn't you almost six years to the day was it um, six okay yeah. So, but, uh, but working full-time for three of those. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and like my kids, my, my daughter was eight months old when I started my PhD. Crazy. Um, and, uh, and now I have a four-year-old son. So, you know, like that's, uh, it's grown up with me and my children. Yeah. The, yeah. um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, as you know, I, I did this slightly differently. I did this as a, as a, uh, a bachelor and much younger, which probably meant that my lifestyle as a PhD student was somewhat different than yours. But they, <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, I think, I think my wife is thrilled for me to get done. She's very, you know, very proud of me, but also, mm -hmm. um, has, uh, uh, has now been with me through two degrees, um, mm -hmm. and I think is probably fairly excited that, uh, that I'm done school. So. Well, talk to this uh, library science guy on your committee. Maybe you could pick up uh, an MLIS while you're there, you know, and, and uh, develop some other skills or uh, you exactly. know, check out the MBA program while you're in town. You got, yeah. you got options. Yeah, you could do a GIS certificate at some point or something like that. So. Absolutely. Yeah, never yeah. stop learning, Ken. Never stop learning. Exactly. Okay, so, but just before I let you go, um, you did a um, what's called a paper dissertation. What's the approximate titles of the three papers in it? Uh, so the first one is a paper you and I co-wrote. So there's an introduction. Cool. The first paper is a paper you and I co-wrote, which is mm -hmm. called, um, what can the far Northeast say about the maritime woodland? Great. Which um, is already published. So that's which exciting. Is already published. So any criticisms about that are going to land on deaf ears. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the second paper, um, uh, was a, uh, a, a paper I published with Susan Blair and Cliff Shaw at the university of New Brunswick. Um, it's called aesthetics or function in lithic technology. So basically talking about, um, uh, you know, why people might be heat treating rocks to turn them red. Uh -huh. And that's uh, in J, uh, the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology in 2000. Is that right? 2020. Yeah. 2020? Um, okay. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's the, it's technically the third chapter, but it was the first piece that I published on my research basically. Uh -huh. um, and then the third, uh, the, the third essay or, or paper, um, which is the fourth chapter, is um, called uh, Persistent Placemaking um, in the, hold on, that's the title of the thesis. I should know this. <laughs> hold on. I can pull this up here quickly. Give you the actual title. Yeah. 
Um, it's called Pieces of a Persistent Place, Circulation of Washington Oak Church, and Portable Placemaking on the Maritime Peninsula, Eastern Canada. So oh, it's wow. an, okay. an argument about placemaking and how um, stone from a quarry uh, can be thought of um, as groups basically circulating a notion of place. And so the quarries are these significant places in the landscape. They are persistent places mm -hmm. and pieces of them. So the lithics that you uh, you extract from those quarries uh, and exchange or trade with, uh, you know, kith and kin, basically, um, can be construed as an act of portable placemaking. And so your experiences at those, uh, at the quarry, your experience, your memories, the identity that you tie to those places um, you probably are communicating that to people when you're handing them these beautiful rocks and making particular Very cool. things on them. So, uh, so yeah, so that's the, th that's the chapter four. And then the, the final chapter is just a conclusion that kind of brings uh, everything together. So, all right. Kind of well, um, so uh, not that you're going to need it, Ken, but good luck uh, tomorrow. Thank you. Um, have lots of fun. And I will. for the listener, what we're going to do is, even though we're recording this on Ken's way out, we're going to uh, turn this and probably some other um, some other uh, content. Uh, we'll, we'll record an intro at some point after the dissertation uh, and then uh, travel through time. And you will get this uh, this special piece from the uh, from the Chili's airport, along with some more. Probably by the next time you hear from uh, from our Ken, uh, our, our co-host, Ken, he will be Dr. Holyoke, I suspect. Um, it, and so that's that's a question that a lot of people have been asking me that I don't know the answer to. Am I Dr. Holyoke after I defend or when I get my degree? So I had to sort this out because um, you may recall that I, I also got a job without uh, having finished. And it was contingent on a on a rather substantial pay raise to find out if I was done. <laughs> and um, so I called UConn and the, the registrar assured me that um that even though i had not yet been handed the old sheepskin that i was dr reinick and more importantly they assured human resources um that that uh, i should get my uh my visiting assistant professor rather than my lecturer stipend or whatever oh, it was there you go instructor you maybe go. i can't remember what it was um and uh and so i think for all um you certainly morally will be dr holyoke uh by you know 24 hours from now, 48 hours from now. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Yeah. But uh, I better get going. And, All right. Uh, thank you, listener. Thank you very much, listener. And don't let them uh, shoot the plane down, Ken. <laughs> well, Ken, how uh, how was the thesis defense? Uh, it was successful. So it Fantastic. was... Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was... Uh, um, uh, excellent committee. Um, Marie Pierre Boucher chaired it. She's from the Faculty of Information. Um, external appraiser Stephen Loring. My core committee: Michael Shazen, Craig Sapola, and Gary Copeland, who's my supervisor. And then uh, Max Friesen and uh, Ed uh, or Tad Banning were uh, were rounding out the group there. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it went quite well. Um, very well received. Lots of interesting questions. Couple couple curveballs from Ted. Um, oh yeah, a, such as yeah. so. Um, so the the I have editorial. I don't know what the. Uh, anyway, there's editorial 
changes, I think is what the name of it is. But basically it's like minor tweaks that need to, you yeah, know, yeah. there's a citation he had mentioned about heat treating that I should add in, a few other things that he's flagged, that kind of thing. But edits thing, that aren't substantive, really, not but substantive, are necessary. No. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that he picked up on is that uh, one of the published papers, uh, the statistics may not have actually been done right. And uh, he, he's unsure how it actually got through peer review because he is uh, he is actually an editor of that journal and said that this should have been flagged like right away. Um, so in, in the in the chi-square that I did. Um, yeah. He thinks that the numbers might have been reversed or something like that. So anyway, I'm working, sorting through that with him to go. Oh, he through. thinks you screwed up your own chi squared. Yeah. Oh, and he's so he's unsure if we ran the wrong numbers. So um, he also said that you're supposed to show the tables in the publication. He's not sure why it didn't show up in the publication. Interesting. Is this uh, is this a certain journal the beginning in J and ending in two A's? Yeah. Yeah. The so, um, I I think uh having just had a paper which we'll talk about in maybe in the hit pieces the um, my recent JA paper is just littered with typos. There are there are a couple of them. Yeah, I think that the um I think it's possible that the copy editing that might ensure that things like tables get in has uh suffered over at Elsevier recently. <laughs> so. Um, in any case, uh, it, it's uh, his comment was that this is somewhat pedantic and inconsequential to your interpretations, but why don't you take a look at this and we'll get a, the proper table put in there. That's great. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of bizarre, oh, actually. Yeah. So I, I actually feel ethically, listener, um, I will be obliged to actually um, submit an addendum to that paper uh, or an erratum basically, um, and correcting the, the stats, um, yeah. which don't, I think is an worry, incredibly listener. important thing to do. It is. And, and in fact, Ken's going to do this in such a way to actually boost his tenure case. He's going to, he's going to, it's it, the paper that's going in is uh Holyoke responds to Holyoke at all. I would yeah. say. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Holyoke and banning responds to Holyoke at all. That's yeah. Something be. like that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and and uh, really interesting conversations about landscape and place, and you know why why place instead of landscape, or how do they fit together, and um, some excellent uh, uh, commentary from uh, both Max and Stephen Loring on community engaged archaeology as as two archaeologists who have done really truly community engaged archaeology for decades now. Um, uh, Stephen Loring probably among the first to do like a really genuinely community-based archaeology project um, in in the far northeast, really, I think, probably, uh, you know, in, in, in many ways. Or very far that, northeast. Very, very, <laughs> in the farthest north of the northeast. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, so so pretty, pretty neat stuff. Um, it was really fun. Um, Dr. Loring was kind enough to gift me um, a piece of ramature, which was pretty neat. Um, That's fantastic. So, so he came out in person for it. No, no, he mailed. Uh, he was on. He was on Zoom, unfortunately. But uh, but he mailed. He mailed, he mailed a chunk of shirt to Gary to give to me for uh, for the defense. So oh, that's incredibly nice. He's defense, an awfully yeah. nice fellow, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, incredibly kind. And and that was the thing. It was it was a um. It was actually ended up being a really fun conversation. Uh, yeah. You know the the questions are hard. You have to answer them, but um. You know, lots of time to kind of talk about them and respond to them, and then and then had just a really kind of enjoyable conversation at the pub afterwards to kind of elaborate Excellent. on 
you know, some of the comments and, and, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm always very uncomfortable with people kind of like lauding, you know, saying, giving you my, me praise or whatever, but, uh, but it is kind of neat to, you know, hear however, like the different things that, of your thesis that everyone really enjoys and, and, you know, having basically people tell you that, you know, this is a real contribution and, and, um, and that, uh, you know, it's, and it's done, which is, it's excellent. Yeah. It's, which is pretty cool. Like, uh, yeah. so yeah. As Bill Farley, uh, likes to say D is for done. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, uh, so, um, um the... yeah. And I, I'm not sure how much for enlightening thought I'll have about it today, but, uh, <laughs> the, the, the glow is sort of, uh, still there in, in a little bit. A little bit, and and I, I you know, it's um, it, it is odd to be able to have a have the new honorific. So, I'm not yeah, the real feel... Doctor Holyoke, though. My my sister is an MD who <laughs> who will remain the real Doctor Holyoke. So, <laughs> the uh, yeah, the uh, I nor nor am I the um, but um, the uh, friend of mine uh, was at a family thing or something, and uh, and he uh, his I think cousin must have just finished medical school, cousin or something, and and the uh, Cousin's parents were proud, and, and my friend's uh, mom said, "Oh yeah, you know, my friend is, is going to be a doctor too, but not the kind that helps people." <laughs> Still think is a good line. The uh, did you uh, did you did you rush to did you manage to change your um, your uh, your airplane ticket to say to reflect the new uh, the new title? No, no, I wasn't able to do that on the on this occasion. Uh, but uh, I guess shame. when I go, I guess when I go back, and probably in November, I guess for uh, for convocation. Maybe I can I can have the honorific then. So there you go. Which, I, hope so. I, I was pleased. I was pleased because you and I, as the listener has just heard, you and I had a discussion for the end of our conversation a couple of days ago about whether or not I actually am Dr. Holyoke before I conferred the degree. And Ted emerged from their, you know, that. Uh, so when you finish the defense, your your whole committee um, is, sits and chats about what their, you know, score is for it. Basically, there's. At U of T, there's different rankings. So there's complete, um, uh, or sorry, passed with no revisions, passed with editorial uh, changes, passed with minor revisions, and passes passed with major revisions. Um, and then there's fail, which I think you shouldn't be at the defense if fail is one of those options. Yeah, but something's gone awry. <laughs> something's gone terribly awry. Um, but yeah, and so um, each of them has like kind of so basically, I send corrections to Gary uh, to my supervisor, and and then we forward it to SGS sometime in the next couple of weeks. So, um, but when he emerged from the room, he came out and said, "Congratulations, Doctor Holyoke," which is which is you know kind of cool to hear. So yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Uh, that, that's that's all very exciting. Um, and so I was going to ask you, do you have any advice for a student who is starting out on their PhD? Um, don't do it during a pandemic. Um, so, you know, try to, try to anticipate that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. don't be afraid to start a family. Um, in many ways, having family, um, will help you pull through. Actually, it's, uh, there's, it's important to have necessary distractions. Um, and, uh, and, you know, whether that is a partner or children or, you know, a pet, or even just a really good hobby, um, make sure your life isn't your PhD um, because that would be incredibly difficult. Um, take time to ensure that you and your supervisor are going to work 
um, and make sure that you do that before, like, make sure you do that before you get started. Uh, meet with them, have a conversation, try to be, you know, on a social level, are you going to be able to get along with them? Um, and, you know, if you start and you feel like there are issues, don't be afraid to talk to somebody about maybe either switching to a different supervisor or finding somebody that might be able to co-supervise to help you navigate that. Because ultimately, your success is probably going to be contingent upon having uh, a supervisor that is attentive, um, constructive, uh, but also um, that you guys have a relationship where you can trust each other, where you can take commentary and critique from your supervisor in a way that is going to make your work better as opposed to create sort of an acrimonious relationship between the two of you, you know, inevitably there will be tension between the two of you and, you know, like nobody likes to have their work kind of, uh, uh, you know, critiqued and, or, you know, heavily edited, or, you know, I just don't think this works like that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I, uh, I, I was incredibly lucky to have Gary as a, as a supervisor. He's very patient. Um, you know, and took the time to really think um, and, and you know, be very thoughtful about my work and, and predict the kinds of things that, you know, roadblocks that might come my way and help me navigate through things like, you know, um, challenges with permitting, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, well, maybe try this instead. Advice on, you know, uh, talking with community members. Like, so, you know, make sure you're a good fit for your, your faculty member. And at the end of the day, also just like, um don't think of your PhD as the best thing that you're ever going to do. It's the best thing you've done to date um, and work incredibly hard at it and, you know, ensure that what you're doing is contributing something new and be able to pick out what you think the contribution is and be able to communicate that. Like, what do you think is the contribution of your literature to your field or, or research to your field? Um, but don't feel like it's going to be the, the best and only thing you ever do. Um, because I think once you get done, what you'll realize is that there's so many more avenues. Even if academia isn't your field, your professional career, whether it's in archaeology or something else, is going to be, um, uh, it'll be enhanced by you having that degree and and finishing it. I think that's the key is just push through and finish. You know, it can be really tough. Um, and uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it is fun at the end now, now that I'm there. <laughs> yeah well, is, is that's the distinction between is it type one fun is fun while it's happening type two fun is it's fun that i did it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's a, that was so, my understanding yeah um yeah no, it's one is all, from all... one you get from drink eating too much sugar or something yeah yeah exactly they well, i think that's all great advice ken and actually i think i think maybe one thing that we we forgot about to talk about when we were discussing the pregame is that just one thing that you that a phd is very good for is um learning to take uh criticism i think about about the written yep. work it's just one of the um key uh key things i think that that really um in a good phd program you'll get you'll get a lot of um, yeah having humility and knowing what your you know like i i had a question that was asked to me during the defense yesterday and you know i could answer part of it and i said you know i i like that's just not my strength and and i you know i'm not going to try to fumble through an answer and and like I, that's not, you said, wait, 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 Ted, that, that letter's called a Kai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I said, you know, like statistics are really like about as far from one of my strengths as, as you could get. And, and I was like, I, I genuinely do not have an answer 
of why I did not use that statistical test for you. <laughs> and I was like, and I also, I wrote the paper almost four years ago and I will, I will admit, I don't remember what went in what columns. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'll get yeah. back to you on that one. <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, but, he, he was pretty funny about it though. It, uh, that's um, good. Yeah. He said he feels like it's, it's, uh, he explained to me in the bar afterwards that, uh, it's it's the last chance we get to make you feel really uncomfortable uh and then we get to have a beer with you afterwards so yeah yeah no that seems good um and so uh where'd you go for the beer to uh the anthropology haunt prenup pub uh so Is that just the one uh, right beside the elma combo no that's the red room oh yeah we went to the red room didn't we went to the red room yeah 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 so uh, another anthropology haunt it's on college street so it's uh ostensibly i guess a uh a belgian bar um so they specialize in um like european craft beer like you know they have a different glass for every different kind of beer and oh cool pretty good food there like uh cool uh, they're they're known for their uh prenup uh marriage and divorcee muscles uh yeah i also noticed they've added a cocktail to their menu that's called the sleepy joe oh have they (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's in that does it say uh i feel like it was a whiskey uh whiskey cocktail i was gonna get one and then I, we you know i they have fuller's london pride there on tap and uh and there's not very many places that have that so that's usually what i get when i'm there right um and the i, I think because people we know people also come to this um this program for our restaurants and drink spots reviews um if the listener finds uh themselves in toronto uh, I mean, I think we're we're happy to recommend Bar Raval. Yep. Um, um, but what? But there's some. There were some good um, kind of hole in the wall spots uh, there in I think Kensington that are that are quite. Yeah. Good. Yeah. There's so there's a really great spot. There's Rasta Pasta, which Rasta is Pasta, a, yeah. which is a Jamaican Italian fusion restaurant. Um, new Boogle, uh, very what's, good. What's New Boogle? Uh, good, very good wood fired uh, bagels. Oh, lovely. Um, uh, my my favorite restaurant, sort of in the campus area, is Harvard House, which is just west of campus on on Harvard Street. Cool. Um, and they have um they have coffee duck wings, which I'm not sure if you could make a wing better than a coffee duck wing. It is transcendent in terms of That's the experience. Quite good. Yeah. And if you that like wings, like. this will just change your life. So wow, um, cool. And then and then my favorite Caribbean spot. Uh, which is very close to campus was uh, Tasty's, but uh, but uh, just yeah, you took me there once. Yeah, that was quite yeah, good. For for um, eight dollars and fifty cents, you get a basically a quarter. Eight dollars and fifty cents Canadian. Listener. Canadian. That means yeah, they eight, actually pay you if you pay in American money. It's sort of yeah, strange. Yeah. So you get uh, like a quarter jerk chicken and then some rice and peas and and veggies. Yeah, that's great. Um, the uh, and and the name of that dumpling spot that uh, the oh, guest yes, speakers mother's dumplings. Yeah, mother's dumplings. A, a, yeah, 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 that's an excellent spot too. Also highly yeah. recommended. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I think Ken, that um, we should uh, well, obviously, congratulations. I mean, this is this is very exciting. Um, yeah. The uh, you know we the listener. I don't know if if the listener knows this. Ken and I were master students together. Yep. Um. And then uh, Ken uh, worked in industry for a while and then uh, went back to do the PhD. And it's uh, excellent to have um, the doctor is in, you know, so this is good. Yeah, yeah. This is no, good. It's, Congratulations. It's, 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 I'm, it's uh, I'm, much earned. It's very exciting. So yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and what are you going to do to celebrate when you're back in um, the other part of Alberta? Uh, so I don't know. I think uh, my wife and I will probably try to 
uh, get out for dinner together this weekend. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, probably hang out with the kids this weekend and then finish up some course prep stuff. We've got uh, classes start here at the University of Lethbridge on Thursday. They're here um, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, then we're into the into the semester. So um, pretty busy fall. My brother-in-law gets married uh, the first after the next weekend, I guess, um, which will be pretty fun. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, it's a uh, uh, busy fall. I don't think I'm going to be doing any conferencing this fall. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss all my friends at the Eastern States Archaeological Federation meeting. Um, yeah, but we'll as- be hurtling that way in a in a 14 passenger van on a multi-day road trip. Yeah, it was going to cost me somewhere in the order of about ten thousand Canadian dollars, I think, to get to Ocean yeah, yeah. City, Maryland. So, <laughs> and I'm real curious what kind of a uh, knife and gun club we're staying at because the uh, the nightly fee is sixty nine dollars at this hotel in Ocean City. Uh, so, so that should be fun. Um, Tuck well, your Ken, pants I... into your socks. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, Ken, uh, perhaps, uh, Dr. Holyoke, at this point, we should um, pivot over to hit pieces. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Ken, well, we've got some uh, pretty exciting hit pieces uh, this uh, this week. And yeah. the first first one I wanted to highlight is some work by Bonnie Newsom, Donald Saktoma, Emily Blackwood. And um, a fellow who actually I don't know, but I think his name Jason Bro, uh, B-R-O-U-G-H. Um, uh, three of them are out of the University of Maine. And then Donald Saktoma is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Passamaquoddy in Maine. And their paper is called Indigenous Archaeology, Shell Heaps, and Climate Change, a case study from Passamaquoddy Homeland. And it is in the um, forthcoming Advances in Archaeological Practice. And this is a really good paper. And it discusses the UMaine Field School in uh, Machias, Maine. It's a field school, incidentally, that I am an alum of. I I did a field school, um, did that field school in Machias, Maine. Field school. And this article talks about some of the collaborative approaches that University of Maine and the Passaquoddy Tribe and uh, Maine Coast Heritage Trust um, are using to build collaborative archaeology. So it deals a lot with actually the integration of archaeology and language learning. Um, And of course, those coastal sites uh, are rapidly eroding. And so, highly recommend this article. yeah, I actually and, I hadn't I hadn't seen that one. That's a I'm I'm excited to read that actually. Yeah, this might should, be kind of down your alley, actually, Ken. Yeah. I wonder if she get Bonnie on the show to talk about that. Would she want to come on? Uh she very well might. She's on sabbatical. Um and I think we should see if she'd like to. It would be uh interesting. Yeah. And then uh and sorry, uh, I just, that, just one more thing. They've actually got a great um research program in general out of the um University of Maine uh, through the Climate Change Institute too, which is doing a lot of this kind of work. Uh, so lots of interesting, uh, lots of interesting stuff. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and then our other hit pieces for today are actually a couple of things that involve co-host uh, Gabe Reinick. Um, so the first of them is in our previous episode, uh, we discussed um, some of the work that uh, a paper that Gabe and Arthur Anderson and a couple of colleagues at University of New Brunswick, your subject librarians, is that correct? 
That's right. So, um, so Eric is our subject librarian, and then uh, Mike Mead is kind of the um, all things digital imaging guy here. Yeah, and so that paper in advances in archaeological practice, which is embedding librarians in archaeological field schools, is out now. So you can find it wherever you like to find your advances in archaeological practice uh, literature. Um, and so then... it's embedding librarians, not embedding archaeologists, as Ken and I misreported in one of our grant <laughs> applications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just wanted to flag that is open access. That one. So oh, that's um, fantastic. Okay, great. Yeah, there's a um, um, there's a one. I mean, one of the many perks of writing with librarians is the librarians realized that the University of New Brunswick had some kind of a um, uh, agreement with Cambridge that got us free open. Uh, I'm sure it's not free. I'm sure someone paid for it, but um, free to us, open access uh, publishing with um, uh, AAP, which was exciting. That's fantastic. And so so for those of you who are listening, uh, in the show notes, there'll be a direct link to that article, and you can just click that and read it as you would uh, sort of a news article, you know, or you can download the PDF or something like that. And the other one, this is a paper that I've been looking forward to seeing for some time, because I know um, uh, we uh, Gabe and Matt Betts have just published uh, in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology, a paper entitled Late Maritime Woodland Period Hunter-Fisher-Gatherer Complexity in the Far Northeast Toward an Historical and Contingent Approach. And so this builds on an argument um, that, that Gabe and Matt sort of kind of set the stage with in their uh, their book from a couple of years ago, um, uh, Archaeology of the Atlantic Northeast. Um, and uh, Great read. Um, and basically, Gabe, do you want to kind of give the rundown of where you guys came at this from and and some of the data that you're pulling into this? And um, the, the paper is sort of uh, making an argument, presenting a case study um, and uh, in sort of a compelling way and, and uh, drawing on, you know, pulling a number of different lines of data together. So do you want to kind of speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Just just to kind of, I guess, put it sort of briefly. Um, and I should say this article uh, drew on a lot of uh, work by uh, by other people, including uh, our own Dr. Holyoke. Um, and the premise was basically that um, in recent years, hunter-gatherer complexity has been a hot topic. So as the listener knows, um, folks on the Maritime Peninsula were hunter-gatherers until after European contact. And when we talk about, when anthropologists talk about complexity, um, what that just means is it's referring to um, a kind of political system that involves political organization beyond the family band that characterizes most hunter gatherers. The classic example of um, hunter gatherer uh, complexity is the Northwest Coast, where people make big houses. They have, like I said, political organization beyond the family uh, band. They have uh, population grows, and it's long been thought that that was supported primarily by a particularly kind of lucrative Northwest Coast um, fishery and and otherwise marine adaptation. Yeah, and there's, this... sort of the, and there's sort of these criteria for what you would call complexity that I think we've covered on the show before, but did you want to kind of rehash just a couple of those, what those things might be? Yeah, sure. So it's things like um, big houses. It's things like um, intensification to get more um, food resources. Um, it's, you might see evidence for expanding interaction spheres. Um, storage. The, we also, storage, that's a, that's an important one. We also, um, look a bit at the, uh, ethno-historic record to just sort of, well, what kinds of aggregations and interactions are people describing at first contact? And we basically just try to sort of make the point in this paper that 
the idea of um, uh, ancestral Wabanaki people being um, kind of, I, I think uh, I think the famous Dave, or it's not maybe not a famous Dave Sanger line, but the the old uh, Dave Sanger line uh, was that uh, Algonquian hunter gatherers basically behave as hunter gatherers should. Uh, was the quote I think, and we basically argue that well, no, they don't really. There's in fact um, lots of evidence for complexity, and the overarching argument that we make actually is that maybe thinking about complexity as a kind of package, as things that always happen together, um, is less effective than thinking about complexity as a kind of loosely related uh, collection of practices that can be deployed under different circumstances and can be um, reeled back in. You can you can stop doing certain kinds of activities like building big houses, intensifying resources, um, and so forth. Um, throws heavily on arguments put forward in dissertation by Kevin Leonard out of the University of Toronto. Um, and then, of course, uh, all of the usual suspects on their various uh, various specialties. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, so it's an excellent paper. Um, oh, thank you. That one. Uh, yeah, I, th- I I enjoyed reading it. I I I don't think I saw a draft of this one, but I, I think we've had enough conversations that I was yeah. pretty sure what the content was going to be. But it was great <laughs> to finally see it come out, and and actually I was able to cite it in my my uh, um, uh, in my defense presentation yesterday. Oh, that's lovely. So, yeah. Well, thanks yeah, very much. So, I really um, appreciate that. Yeah. So you guys got an entire slide to yourselves where I'm talking oh, about. Um, in the context of what we're seeing with exchange with Washington Oak Church in late maritime woodland, it's being kind of oh, an cool. example of this widespread um, uh, movement of of uh, exotic lithic materials, basically. So that's lovely here, and um, maybe a little cyclical because I think we cited you for that in the paper, but they. <laughs> um yeah so um that's excellent so uh we've got a couple more hit pieces that we're going to save for next episode i think we're going to start getting back to a little bit more regular recording schedule here um and uh before we wrap though um i think we are back on the line with uh with trevor dad we certainly are and the listener can't see this but trevor dow hello hello show that's that's the man the man himself is a is a sharp dresser under any circumstances, but he's wearing a suit with a gigantically wide tie, and uh, and I think those are bell bottom slacks, which he's holding up to the camera. And so, um, he he looks a bit like a game show host, and it's possible the reason he looks a bit like a game show host is that Trevor Dow is the official swag representative for the East Coast of the Eco Four uh, Bingo Game. How are you, Trevor? I'm well. I'm well. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. And um, it's lovely. What do you um? So so Trevor uh, he teaches a little bit at UNB and he's also a cultural resource management archaeologist. Most recently, for Ecofor. And so, what kind of things do you do for Ecofor, Trevor? Uh, I do a variety of things there now. Mostly sort of uh, senior archaeological kind of things, reviewing other people's uh, work and reports and things like that. Um, reviewing subcontractors work and uh and what have you uh but um i've been doing a bit more uh field work out on this side of the uh the continent uh for eco4 uh this last couple of years um but yeah i mean we're mostly based uh on the west coast we have you know offices in prince george and fort st james and uh fort st john and uh Kitimat and Kinsel and uh, all through BC there. And then we have some offices in Alberta and, and <clears throat> excuse me, an office in 
Whitehorse as well. And, uh, and then I have another colleague who uh, works out of Dartmouth. Um, so I'm not completely alone on the East coast, but I am, uh, um, uh, you know, the, one of the only people here in New Brunswick. So. Yeah. Well, Ecoforce yeah, yeah. really populated all of the most desirable cities in Canada, I would say. <laughs> yeah, and, um, the, uh, they've got a, they've got yeah. a heavy presence on the Yellowhead highway where I used to, I used to, those my old haunts at one point. So yeah. 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 Um, exactly. But uh, it, it also is uh, the Ecoforce, one of the, uh, you guys are doing all sorts of interesting work and, um, and lots of interesting folks work for you. Um, and, uh, and it's exciting that you're, you're getting back into the East coast game, despite working for a West coast company. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to be back doing East coast field work again. That's yeah. great. Um, and we're going to have Trevor on obviously to talk about his own graduate research, which involves policy in a bunch of interesting ways and mapping the discipline. But today, today, as the suit would imply, we have Trevor <laughs> on because Ecofor generously donated, um, a bunch of swag for us to raffle off to, um, folks who have submitted finished bingo cards. So Listen, this is should not we have be like a, a should we have a, a drum roll effect in here when we uh, uh when when this is uh, in in post? Should we have a what? A drum roll effect? Oh yeah, go ahead and add the drum roll. Um, because since it won't pick up the gong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so the uh, the the listener may recall that Ecofor generously donated uh, a whole bunch of swag. I got nice backpacks, nice trowels, nice hats. Those are custom trowels with the Ecofor symbol. And and the way this works, listener, is if you you send in a finished bingo card, uh, I guess we should say a, a bingo card that's finished uh, according to the rules of winning bingo. You know, it's uh, a, a line or um, I guess you can get blackout. Um, we will enter you into the next draw. We uh, We now have enough of these for our first draw. But so keep keep them coming. And and Trevor, um, in this draw, what is the, the winner going to get? Ah, yes. Um, the winner is going to get uh, one of the snazzy Eco4 branded Marshalltown trowels. Um, oh, wow. Very, very nice trowels. Um, yeah. I have one myself. Um, and I think we're also going to give away one of these really snazzy waterproof backpacks, I think, to that's what we talked about, right? In this, uh, I, in this one, yeah, I think that's the plan. Right? These are really nice. Snap, uh, snap a picture of those for Instagram or something, eh? I will. Yeah. I will. Yeah, they're they're StormTech uh, brand backpacks, so they're all rubberized. They'll keep your stuff uh, nice and dry. I have two of them. I use one in the field, and I have one for commuting, like my daily commute back and forth to the university and stuff. Um, but they're like the z the zippers on them and stuff are all rubberized. So you don't have to worry about weather and rain and stuff uh kind of getting into them but they're uh like a i guess that we call a day size backpack so it's good for you know lunch and uh some an extra change of clothes and stuff like that for the field or uh yeah like i said just your daily commute that's absolutely right and um and in fact when when trevor mentioned that ecofor was interested in, in sponsoring this um we didn't realize that Ecofor didn't understand how sponsorship usually works. That usually that involves <laughs> that involves you know some of this swag would have been you know waterproof backpacks would have been moved to the hosts, but instead, um, Ecofor is a very egalitarian kind of operation. And so, what um, Trevor is doing right now is he has picked up, uh, I, I think it is um, a spinning basket, and he's spinning the handle, and okay. I am seeing a bunch. It looks of... like a safety helmet to me, because safety. <laughs> oh, 
safety is an incredibly important part of the CRM game, Gabe. That's PPE right there. Yeah, yeah well, he's in the safety helmet, I see. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So he's so he's he's shaking the safety helmet, shaking the safety helmet, and um, All right. it's an Eco4 branded safety helmet. And Trevor, would would you reach into there? And um, the listeners should know that we've actually um, we've 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 written um, each of these on a special Eco4. Um, uh, the sort of ping pong balls to to give it a certain game show feel, <laughs> and uh, would you check that out, Trevor, and reach in there, and would you would you pull out a name, please? All right, Jillian. All right, congratulations, Jillian. So Jillian, uh, who I am fairly certain is uh, a regular listener, um, because I believe that Jillian has uh, commented on the Instagram before. Congratulations! You will be getting the Eco Four backpack and trowel. And Trevor, am I right that uh, that that if we get Jillian's address, you can you can mail it to her? Yes, that's right. If uh, Jillian wants to reach out to you guys either through the email address or the Instagram um, and provide those details, then we'll get that sent out to her. You Fantastic. can do that. Exciting. Uh, well, thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Eco Four, and congratulations, Jillian. Congratulations, yeah, congratulations Jillian. Jillian. And, and thank and you remember, guys for, uh, oh, sorry, Ken, I didn't mean to speak over yeah. you. I was just going to say thank you for the opportunity to um, to do this. I mean, we yes, have a lot of fans uh, of the podcast in Eco4, both uh, myself, but also on the West Coast. So um, we're uh, we're glad to uh, to do this. So, yes, and, that's lovely. And we'll look for the backpack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and thank you to Eco4 again. And, and tell the crew that if they're looking for the uh, second generation of stickers, um, I can uh, just pick an office and I'll, and I'll send a few to uh, distribute to the West Coast folks. We'll send them to any Perfect. port you want. Fort McMurtry, <laughs> yeah. Fort St. George. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks, Thank Trevor. you very much, Trevor. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, Ken, um, I am looking at a half-finished bottle of sparkling. That's right, sparkling Cuvassier in celebration oh. of your big win. That's, uh, um, that's delightful. And I'm looking at a mostly finished uh caesar so um well, that, that is my corvassier for today there we go um congratulations again on your uh successfully defended dissertation on your newfound degree on the uh new honorific and the new yeah. postnomials well i i i appreciate it and uh, thank you listeners for uh, tolerating me uh, lamenting uh being in the in the throes of finishing this um and uh, yeah, we're going to have to come up with a new gag, I guess, for, for the uh, for the second season. I guess. I guess so. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we will uh, we'll talk to you in about a fortnight, listener. Yes. Talk to you then, listener. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Clap. Oh, that wasn't even close. Hold on. All right. Three, three, two, one, clap. There. Well, I, I think that was a good one. Got it. Yeah. How's my level sound? You sound good to me. Are you in the chilies? I'm in the chilies. Can you hear the pop music in the background? No. Oh.